Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series with James Jordan in the book of Leviticus. Here he's going to be in chapters 16 through 22 and talking about holy living for Israel and what that means for us today. Do check out those show notes for our social media handles as well as our YouTube channel. We are winding down our ongoing video series, Walking Through the Book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart, and we really think that you'll be helped by it. You can also find a link there to sign up for our weekly newsletter in Medias Race, which will give you a digest of all things going on at Theopolis as well as a weekly note from Peter Lightheart. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan in Leviticus 16-22 through discussing holy living. We have one remaining thing to finish up, and that is the Day of Atonement. In the previous lecture, we did look at the system of clean and unclean, and we saw that all of these ceremonial or symbolic forms of cleanness and uncleanness were related to the judgments placed upon Adam and Eve in the garden. The one form of uncleanness, or the one primary form of uncleanness that was voluntary would be if a person voluntarily ate forbidden food and that would lead to expulsion from the kingdom. And of course that again parallels what happened in the garden. Well, uh, all kinds of forms of uncleanness would happen in Israel and most of them would be taken care of by washing yourself and washing your clothes and waiting until the evening sacrifice or bringing a sacrifice yourself if that was required of you. But, of course, there were many people who didn't bother to do this, or who forgot about it. And these forms of uncleanness would also put defiling marks, so to speak, on the altars and the tabernacle. These things needed to be cleansed as well, and the annual Day of Atonement was set aside for that purpose. We find that the ritual described in Leviticus 16, and in verse 30, it says, It is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, and you shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So whatever has not been cleansed by proper procedures during the year, day to day and week to week, is now cleansed once a year on the day of atonement, and that was its purpose, to take care of all residual uncleannesses. Now there are three aspects of the ritual that we ought to call attention to before moving on to the rest of what we need to cover in this tape. The first is that Aaron, on this occasion, and and the ritual has to be performed by the high priest, it's on this occasion that he goes actually into the Holy of Holies, and this was the only time in the year that the priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and he had to change his garments on this occasion. He took off his garments of glory and beauty and went in and performed the rituals dressed simply in white linen garments. And I think this was probably a sign of his humility before God. He would wear his glorious garments when he stood before men, representing a new Adam, but standing before God he wore much simpler clothes. The second thing to notice is that Aaron has to offer a sin offering for himself, which is a bull. This ritual is described in verses 11 to 14 might be worth just reading. Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering that's for himself. That is a purification offering. 
and make atonement for himself and for his household, that is, the priests. And he shall slaughter the bull of the purification offering that's for himself, and he shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord. The cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, lest he die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Now, the question is, why does Aaron have to have uh, a purification offering that's taken all the way inside to the most holy place? And I think the reason is that as a high priest, the uncleanness of the people not only defiles the tabernacle, but it also defiles him. Aaron himself probably has not done anything that requires a sacrifice for a purification for himself. But he's part of the nation, and also he symbolically represents the nation just as the tabernacle does. And he himself is defiled. At any rate, then we come thirdly to the two goats that are offered for the congregation. And this is what's unique. There are two goats set aside. According to verse 8, there and cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. This goat goes to something called Azazel. And it's debated what this is, but it most certainly, I mean not most certainly, but most probably refers to Satan. And this goat is sent out to Satan, not as a gift and not as his right, but because Satan is the lord of the trash heap, and this goat carries the sins of Israel out of Israel and out to the trash heap, out into the wilderness where it belongs. It goes to hell, so to speak. The sins are cast off into the unclean and defiled place. Now, the purpose of this elaborate ritual was to take care of, as we said, the sins that were not taken care of by the ordinary purification offerings, but it also took care of high-handed sins. Remember back in Leviticus chapter 4 that the sins of a very important person, such as the high priest or one of the cornerstones of the congregation, congregation as a whole, their sins defiled the holy place and blood had to be put on the golden altar, whereas sins of an ordinary citizen required a purification offering, that just defiled the brazen altar in the courtyard, and blood had to be put there. Well, in the ritual of the Day of Atonement, blood is taken all the way into the Holy of Holies. If you look all the way back at your diagram of the tabernacle area, you'll see what we're talking about. The blood is taken all the way into the Holy of Holies. And so this ritual is cleansing something more than just sins of the congregation, sins of inadvertency that Leviticus 4 deals with. This also deals with sins of a high hand. Verse 16 tells us this. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel. That's the normal uncleannesses. And because of their transgressions, that is, crimes, in regard to all their sins. Thus he shall do to the tent of meeting that abides with them in the midst of their impurities. Verse 21 says the same thing. That's what happens when you slaughter the goat and put the blood inside. You cleanse the tabernacle. Then you have to have another goat to carry the sins away. And verse 20 says, When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he will offer the live goat 
Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel. That's the normal impurities and all their transgressions or crimes in addition to all their sins. And he will lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he will release the goat in the wilderness. Now, if you look back at your diagram of the tabernacle area, you'll see outside the camp something called a clean place. Ordinary purification offerings were burned up there. But the iniquities are much greater here, and this goat is sent all the way out to an unclean place, to a solitary land, to Satan, Azazel. You see, the philosophy seems to be that the more powerful the sin and impurity is, the deeper it defiles the house of God, and the further it has to be cast away. At any rate, once a year, all these sins were taken care of, including high-handed crimes. Now, in the sacrificial system... Uh, we know that there is no sacrifice for high-handed sins. So what is going on here? How can you have this? Well, a high-handed sin that's caught has to be dealt with by the magistrate. It's usually a capital offense. Uh, a high-handed sin can be reduced in status by repentance, but if a person doesn't repent, then it remains high-handed and has to be dealt with civilly, and there is no sacrifice for it. But what about high-handed sins that are not caught? They haven't been dealt with by the civil magistrate. They haven't been dealt with by being reduced in status through repentance and a trespass offering. They're still hanging around defiling the nation. Well, that's what the Day of Atonement took care of. It took care of high-handed sins that had not been dealt with anywhere else. And thus the nation was cleansed once a year. Well... After this is finished, then Aaron puts his garments of glory and beauty back on, and the ritual is over. We haven't taken the time to read Leviticus 16. Uh, you can read it, and hopefully the points that I've made here will help you to understand what is going on. Now let's look at Leviticus 17 to 22, and you'll find a chart in your notebook of Leviticus 17 to 22, and we will be talking about holy living. And here again, there are five sections that fit very nicely with the five aspects of the covenant recreation model. Chapter 17 stresses that God alone gives life, and that definitely is in the area of transcendence. Chapter 18 deals with sexual abominations, and we're talking about adultery there. Chapter 19 is a recap of the law. Fittingly, the distribution stipulation section. Chapter 20 goes over the same ground as chapter 18, only this time it gives sanctions. It tells what punishments are to be given. So here we have evaluations and judgments, rules for the court. And then finally, 21 and 22 have to do with the Adamic administrators who are going to take charge of this system and run it. It deals with the priests. So here we find our covenant model again. Now let's look at chapter 17. 17 has two sections, basically. I mean, it can be divided up more, but it basically is concerned with two things for purposes of our survey. The first is that from now on, God says, any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or who slaughters it outside the camp and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. 
He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among the people. What's he saying? Well, up to this time, if you wanted to bring a peace offering and have a meal with the Lord, then that was fine. You brought it to the tabernacle, and you ate it. Actually, there hadn't been any time for anybody to do this, but that was a theoretical understanding up to this point. And if you just wanted to kill one of your sheep or oxen and eat it, and not bring it as a sacrifice, that was fine too. What's being said here is, from now on, you may only slaughter at the tabernacle, at least as regards an ox, a lamb, or a goat. You can't slaughter it in the camp or outside the camp. You have to bring it to the tabernacle, what's called the doorway of the tabernacle, which means the area near the door inside where animals were sacrificed. This means that as long as they were in the wilderness, and this changed when they got into the land of Canaan, but as long as they were in the wilderness, the only time they could ever eat meat was in the form of a peace offering. They had to bring it. They had to give part of it to the priests. They could not just slaughter it and eat it somewhere else. At least that's the implication here. Now, the reason given why that God wanted them to slaughter it was that their instinct was to make these things sacrifices. And he was wanting to break them off from previous customs. Up to this time in history, remember, there was no central sanctuary on the earth. There were altars all over the place, and you could kill animals anywhere you wanted to, and you could worship God anywhere you wanted to. And it's still true that you could worship God anywhere you wanted to, but from now on, the sacrifices were only going to be made at the central sanctuary. And now that the tabernacle had been set up, it was necessary to enforce this and to prevent sacrifices from being offered anywhere else. You may remember that during the days of the kings of Israel, there was always a problem with the high places. The Jews would offer sacrifices on the high places, and they weren't supposed to. They were only supposed to offer them at the temple in Jerusalem. Well, the same kind of thing is going on here. It says in verse 5, The reason is so that the sons of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they were sacrificing in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the doorway, the entrance way, of the tent of meeting to the priests and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. So what I said a moment ago is true. From now on, the only way they could eat meat was to give part of it to the Lord. That is, when it comes to oxen, lambs, and goats. Other animals were different. So the first idea is to prevent them from sacrificing anywhere else and to enforce the change to a central sanctuary. Now, Verses 10 to 16 say that they're not to eat any blood. And why weren't they allowed to eat blood? Because the life of the flesh is the blood, verse 11. And to drink blood or to eat blood directly was an attempt to get life directly from that source. And the idea that's emphasized is that life comes only from God, and you may not get life anywhere else. Blood is life. The life of flesh is blood, it says. Not in the blood, but the blood itself. But... You are not to eat blood because you are not to try to get life in that way. So it says in verse 13, If any man from the sons of Israel or from the strangers who are with them catches a beast or a bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out his blood and cover it with the earth. So animals other than oxen, sheep, and goats, you know, such as deer and gazelle and other clean animals, including birds like chickens, they did not have to be brought to the tabernacle because they weren't sacrificial. But if they were killed, their blood was to be poured out into the ground. You're not to drink it. All right. So that's the stress in chapter 17. God alone gives life, and it's only from God that you can get life. 
Chapter 18 has to do with marriage. It has to do with how the Israelite community is to move into the future. Remember the second point of the recreation model, creation-recreation model, stresses the act of separating and reconstructing. You divide and restructure. And that's what marriage does. And the point of this chapter is to set boundaries for this. And there are two basic boundaries, inner boundaries and outer boundaries. Verse 6, none of you shall approach any relative of his flesh, any blood relative of his flesh, to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Now, that is the seminal idea here. It's a relative of your flesh. That is, it's somebody who's the same as you are. If you marry your sister, if you marry your mother, if you marry somebody that's related to you by flesh, and the idea of flesh is not just physical, it's covenantal, and as we'll see in a second, then you're practicing autonomy. And you're not to try to reproduce yourself through autonomy. The act of restructuring has got to come from the outside. As Adam said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his children. Now that eliminates the possibility of father daughter incest or mother-son incest. You cannot have relations with your parents, and that's a creation ordinance. When Lot's daughter seduced him, that was wrong by creation. However, Cain and Abel and Seth and all the rest didn't have anybody to marry but their sisters, and so brother-sister incest was not prohibited until Moses. Abraham, after all, was married to his sister. Are we still supposed to keep these laws in the New Testament? The church has always said yes. Very often it's pointed to Acts chapter 15, which says that the New Testament church is to restrain from blood and from things that are strangled and from idols and from fornication. And since the ideas there are religious ideas, it's been assumed that fornication there doesn't mean just normal fornication, which everybody knew was wrong and is forbidden by the Ten Commandments, but it's talking about these incest laws here that are part of the Levitical Code, and you might think, well, if we can eat unclean animals in the New Covenant, maybe we don't have to keep these incest laws anymore either. And so the Jerusalem Council was spelling out the extent of the ceremonial law, and I think that there's a lot to be said for that argument. At any rate, we're supposed to keep these incest laws, that's what the Spirit has led the Church to hold for 2,000 years. All right, so the idea in verses 6 through 18 is that you do not have sexual relations and therefore marriage with someone who is of your same flesh. And that includes, say, a woman that your father marries after your mother dies. And let's say your father dies. Can you marry that woman? The answer is no. She's become one flesh with your father. And so for you to have relations with her is for you to have relations with your own father, and that's one flesh with you. And so any type of relationship that is basically autonomous, that can be seen as having relations with yourself and using yourself to generate life is forbidden. It has to be heteronymous. You have to go outside of your family in order to find a mate. Then verses 19 to 23 set the outer boundaries. You can't marry someone too close because that's autonomy, but you can't have relations too far out because that's also a sin. 
It says you're not to approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. If that happens accidentally, then that's okay. But then it says here is a ceremonial law not to do it deliberately. And then we'll see in chapter 20 that in the Old Covenant, if a person did this, they would be excommunicated from the church. They were to be cut off. Now, that's a ceremonial law that the church has never maintained, to my knowledge. In 2,000 years, the Spirit has never led the church to say that we're supposed to keep that particular law. That question always comes up when you teach Leviticus. Do you have to keep this law? The answer is, it's up to you what you want to do if you're married and what seems aesthetically pleasing because the relationship between a man and a wife should be pleasing. And if this is not pleasing or comfortable, then obviously you wouldn't do it, but there's no law. All right, marriage bed is undefiled. Then it says you're not to have intercourse with your neighbor's wife. That's obvious. That's adultery. You're not to offer your children to Molech. You don't have homosexual relations. You don't have relations with an animal. And you don't marry outsiders. Relations with an animal implies you don't marry unconverted Gentiles. They're always spoken of as beasts. Remember, Satan was a beast in the Garden of Eden. And Spiritual adultery was committed there, so the nations are spoken of as beasts very often, especially in Daniel and Revelation. So, you don't marry outsider. You can't have homosexual or bestial relationships. You can't commit adultery, and you're not supposed to marry outside the covenant. Inside the covenant, you can marry unless it's too close. So, the boundaries are set up here. And it says in verses 24 to the end that if you break these laws, then the land will spit you out. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I'll spit you out of my mouth. That means you'll be spat out of the body of Christ, which is the church. In the Old Testament, you were spat out of the land, which was the body of Moses, as Hebrews calls it. It was the environment of the kingdom. So you don't want to be spat out. Now we come to chapter 19, which is a huge list of laws. And in your notes, I have given you an outline of the chapter. And for that reason, I'm not going to take a lot of time here on the tape. These laws are mostly laws that are familiar to you, but in terms of trying to survey it, we just would get way too bogged down. There is a literary arrangement here. These verses end with the phrase, I am the Lord your God, or I am the Lord, and these form groups. There are actually 16 laws, or groups of laws here, and they can be arranged in groups of four. The first two groups of four have to do with holiness, and the second two groups of four have to do with obedience. Notice verse 2, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that sets up the first eight categories. And then verse 19 says, You are to keep my statutes. That's the middle of the chapter. And that sets up the last eight and concludes with verse 37, You shall thus observe all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them. So the chapter divides into two parts, the first half having to do with holiness, what you are to be because God sees you, and the second half has to do with statutes, the things that you're supposed to do that are more visible to men. And each of these is broken into two groups of four. And I've got an outline here for you in the book. The first four, be holy for I am holy, fear your father and mother and guard my Sabbaths, don't turn to idols and don't make cast idols. And then there's a law of the peace offering, which is linked up with gleaning laws. The idea seems to be there that you should include the poor with you when you have your peace offering. Invite them to your feasts. And that's connected up to the gleaning laws. 
The second group goes over a lot of the same ground as the Book of the Covenant in Exodus 21 to 23. It talks about stealing and then lying about it. It talks about oppressing the poor, the bride of God. It talks about perverting justice and misusing your tongue. That is, the stealing commandment has to do with the Eighth Commandment. Then we go back to the Seventh Commandment on oppression. And then we come to the Ninth Commandment on perverting justice. And finally, we go to, I think, probably the Tenth Commandment. Don't hate your brother. Although you could link this with thou shalt not kill. Jesus says he who hates his brother has killed him in his heart. All of these things are things that you're not likely to be caught. Uh, they're not very visible. You're likely to get by with them. So you're supposed to be holy and not do these things. Then we come to the second group, the third and fourth subgroups. And these also use that phrase, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord, at the end, only they mix them. And you can trace it out. The third group has an ABBA form. That is, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord your God. And here we have, don't breed two kinds of cattle, don't sow field with two kinds of seed, don't wear a garment of mixed cloth. These are all symbols of human society. Don't breed two kinds of cattle means don't marry unbelievers. Don't sow a field with two kinds of seed means that in your relationships, in your field, you don't bring in aliens, unbelievers, and mix them in. Don't wear a garment of mixed cloth. A garment is a symbol of society. You don't mix it. Then there's an elaborate and difficult law concerning defiling a betrothed slave girl. Then there's a law for the circumcision of trees. Take off the fruit for the first three years and turn it all over to God in the fourth year, and then you can eat from it in the fifth. These laws are clearly symbolic, but exactly how they connect with us, I'm not sure. The second group has to do with the defiling of the person. Don't eat meat with blood. Don't practice divination. Don't abuse your body. Don't make it look ugly because you're the image of God. Then it says the next group has to do with making your daughter a harlot, lest the land become a prostitute and spit you out. And finally, don't turn to mediums and spiritists. Don't be defiled by them. The last group of four says to respect the aged, do justice to the stranger, don't have dishonest measures, but use honest measures. We seem to come to the Tenth Commandment here at the end. No cheating. And then a final exhortation to guard my statutes. Well, all I can say here is read this chapter and use these notes as your guide, and it may help you to remember it, the structure of it. Perhaps you can commit the contents to memory. Finally, we come to chapter 20. In chapter 20, it goes over most of the same ground as chapter 18, only it gives the sanctions that are to be put. Any man of the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land will stone him with stones. And I'll cut him off. And it goes on here quite a bit about idolatry. And then the person who turns to mediums and spiritists to play the harlot will be cut off. And anybody who curses his father and mother it's supposed to be put to death. And then it talks about adultery. And we go into the sexual offenses, and we have a bunch of different kinds of adultery, all of which require the death penalty. And then we have sexual relations that don't require the death penalty, that is, lesser forms of incest. If a man takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, and they have relations, then they're to be cut off. 
and then they would have to make appropriate sacrifices and repent to be brought back in. This is very specific. It's directed to tell the people that unlike Abraham, things have changed now and they're not to marry their sisters anymore, even if they're only half-sisters. If you have relations with your wife when she's on her period, then you'll be cut off in the Old Testament. Don't uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or your father's sister. You'll bear your guilt. God will get you, and so forth. And then in verses 22 to 26, we have something of a summary of what all of these laws mean, including the clean and unclean laws. You're therefore to keep all my statutes and my ordinances and do them, so that the land to which I'm bringing you to live will not spit you out. Remember, the idea is to be spat out. And the primary symbol of this is the unclean or abominable food. Remember, Abraham could eat pork, but now they're supposed to spit it out, regarded as detestable or abominable. And just as they're supposed to spit out uncleanness, so God threatens to spit them out if they eat it. If they don't spit out and avoid uncleanness and sin, then God will spit them out of the land. And he specifies in verse 23, You will not follow the customs of the nation which I will drive out before you. They did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. That is, they're repulsive to me, and I have cast them away from me. For this reason I said, You are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. And therefore, for that reason because you're separated. You're to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean. You will not make yourselves detestable by animal or bird, or by any creep that creeps on the ground, which I have separated to you as unclean. You are therefore to be holy to me, for I have set you apart from all the peoples to be mine, for I, the Lord, am holy. Now look at the idea here. He says you are not to make yourselves detestable. See, this is the one voluntary form of uncleanness. If you had an issue of blood, there was nothing you could do about it. If a woman's on her monthly period, there's nothing she can do about it. If you get leprosy, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, and if you're starving to death and you have to eat an unclean animal, well, that's okay. You can just wash your garments. But if you deliberately set out to eat unclean food, then that's a high-handed sin, and you're making yourself detestable. When you eat that detestable thing and it goes down inside of you, you become detestable. See? You eat the detestable thing. You are what you eat. If you eat clean food, you become clean. If you eat the Lord's Supper, you become a living sacrifice, because it is Christ's sacrifice. If you eat the unclean thing, you become unclean. And if you eat the detestable thing, you become detestable. And if you eat this detestable food, then God will spit you out. You won't taste good to him. And he will cast you out of the land, just as Jesus will spit us out of his mouth if we're neither hot nor cold. That's the idea, a one voluntary form of uncleanness. And it's a food law just like Adam and Eve's law in the garden. So, that is the end of this section. Now we come in conclusion to the laws regarding the priests who are the successors who are to take charge of this system and administrate it. They're the new Adams who will administer the garden. These laws are not very relevant to us in the New Testament, and they're kind of hard to understand. The applications that we could make to them would entail a great deal of symbolism, applying them to Christ, or transforming them over into requirements for us as Christians. So we're not going to take a lot of time on it. I want to call to your attention in the notes that chapters 21 and 22 also have five sections. 
So this fifth large section is broken into five smaller ones, which follow along the basic ideas of the covenant. It's remarkable how Leviticus is set out this way, and after a while it becomes kind of hard to miss, even though not at every point is it clear. Still, the overall structures are fairly obvious. Verses 1 to 15 of chapter 21 stress the holiness of the priests, and that emphasizes transcendence. They are not to defile themselves with the dead. They're not to mourn, except for very close relatives in any sense. And the effect of that is to be holy to God and not profane his name. The highest of all priests is not to mourn for anyone, not even for his father or his mother or his wife. And that, uh, by the way, when Ezekiel is told not to mourn for his wife, we realize that Ezekiel is functioning as the high priest, and that squares with the theology of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel always sees everything from a holy of holies perspective. He keeps seeing the cherubim, and only the high priest ever got into the holy of holies to see the glory cloud chariot, and so Ezekiel is functioning like a high priest. At any rate, there are laws here for the highest priest. He is to take a wife and her virginity. He can't marry a widow or divorced woman or one who had formerly been a harlot. He has to marry a version of his own people and so forth. There are special rules for him. And we could see a relationship to Christ. The church must be a virgin for Christ to marry her. And of course we're not. So his blood has to be our covering so that we can legally be called a virgin. Then in verses 16 to 24, we move to the second area, which is access. This has to do with the priests who have access, who can draw near to God. And this has to do with mediation and is the second point of the covenant. No man of your offspring who has a defect shall have access to offer bread of his God. No one who has a defect shall have access. Blind, lame, disfigured, deformed. Broken foot, broken hand, hunchback, dwarf, defect in eye, eczema, scabs, crushed testicles. No man among the seed of Aaron the priest who has a defect is to have access to the Lord's food offerings since he has a defect. He shall not have access to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy, only he shall not go into the veil or have access to the altar because he has a defect. He may not profane my holy objects, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So the man who's got these problems can be fed from the holy food, but he is not to offer sacrifices. He is not to have access to come in contact with the altar or to go inside the holy place. He does not have access. He can't draw near, and he can't function as a mediator. All right, then the third area is to take God's name in vain or not take it. And in chapter 22, verses 1 to 16, concerns this. Tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicate to me so as not to profane my holy name. I am the Lord. So that seems to be a stress. Here, don't profane the holy things because those will profane God's holy name. If a person approaches deliberately, handles holy gifts, that the sons of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he's unclean. He's to be cut off, excommunicated. No one of the descendants of Aaron who's a leper has a discharge may eat of the holy gifts until he's clean. And it goes on and on. Verse 7, But when the sun sets, you have a new day, he shall be clean. Afterwards he shall eat of the holy gifts, for it's his food. 
They shall therefore do my guard duty, verse 9, so that they may not bear my sin. Then it says, No layman may eat, but the priest's slave may eat. Priest's daughter, if she marries to a layman, then she loses the right to eat the priest's food. But if she becomes a widow or divorced, and she returns to the priest's house, then she can go back to eating the priestly food and so forth. It all has to do with what God gives them, and it has to do with treating God's holy things properly and not profaning his name. Then we can, in verses 17 to 25, a requirement that the sacrifices have to be perfect, and this requires judgment and discernment, and so I think it fits with the evaluations and judgment section. The offerings may not have a defect. They have to be perfect in form. They can't be blind or fractured or maimed if they're going to be made a food offering on the altar. You can make it as a free will offering for a vow, a free will offering, but not for a vow. And then there are just specifications here that are more complicated than we need to get into in this survey. Finally, we have a succession section dealing with Passover and allowing animals to reproduce. You don't take the mother and the baby on the same day as a food offering, and you must eat the Passover or Thanksgiving sacrifices on the day in which it's eaten and not leave any of it until morning. And this, in my mind at least, seems to have the idea of succession Although he reiterates that you're not to profane my holy name, and I will be sanctified among you. So, five sections here on rules for the priests, uh, highly elaborate details in the sacrificial system that go beyond what this survey of Leviticus wants to get us into. The main thing to remember is that the priests had to be holy to God, and to have access to God, they had to be physically perfect, which is a symbol for moral perfection. It's only in Jesus Christ that we have these things. He is the only one who ever could have kept all these laws, especially in terms of the moral things that they symbolize. And it's only in union with him that we can have access to God's holy things and that we can handle his holy things without profaning them. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.